I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast where we primarily focus on wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Of course, it's going to be another 80s show again today. But before we get rolling, I want to invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. And with that, I will bring on our occasional usual guest, his co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, can you tell the world about our Facebook group to start with? Yeah, the Facebook group is uh, growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, we've had some uh, good activity, and uh, amongst it, amongst those activities is Eric Ford, who asked, what wrestler do you regret never seeing live? And uh, John, do you have any uh, uh, you personal know, like that? The, the biggest star I never saw live, and the biggest American star I never saw live, like in the 80s and 90s, was Mr. Wrestling 2. So... That's like a good thing. I've seen a lot of people live. I, I realized that um, in 1984, I got to see Akira Maeda in Boston live. So I kind of wish I, I'd flown to Japan, but I would. it would have been really expensive, and that's money I, I could have spent uh, more responsibly, Steve. <laughs> and Andrew Betts mentions that uh, this coming August will be the 30th anniversary of the debut of ECW. The debut of ECW is way more than 30 years ago. They, the, the night the line was crossed was about a, a week ago, the one with uh, that really, I thought, launched ECW with the three-way with Funk, Douglas, and Sabu. Okay. All right. Yeah. And he had a, he had a thread about uh, Shane Douglas as well. And uh, lastly, uh, none other than the great Jamie Ward had a, a really nice little uh, comment, uh, nostalgic comment about John Gallagher and wrestling for Yeah, him. John was a great guy. Had he not passed away, he absolutely would have been a guest on the show. John was a great guy. I'm, it's sad what happened to him. His health just deteriorated as time went on. And one of my friends, Jeff Siegel, went to visit him and said he, he was not only in a wheelchair but he was on oxygen so you never like to hear that and uh but yeah john was such a great guy steve did you did you realize that in about a month it's going to be baseball season uh i've already got a couple of tickets for some uh, exhibition games i'm going to go with my brother to a yankees game and going with a neighbor to another yankees game Excellent. All right. Good for you. You get to see the uh, the preseason there in Tampa with the Yankees. And before we get rolling, uh, again, last week I mentioned that I love doing this show. It's the 1984 retrospective uh, awards show. Uh, but I, I found something on YouTube this week that really pertains to the, the national expansion it's Tito Santana explaining why he thought that the title switch was not recorded or did not come out recorded correctly uh, the night he won the title from that, the magnificent Morocco in Boston. Really quick, let's hear from Tito Santana now. Does it bother you that this is probably the very last intercontinental title change? It was in the Boston Garden that wasn't recorded or the, or the footage is lost. Uh, have you ever seen it back? Have you ever seen the video? 
uh, I, I never saw. I, they they told me that they ran out of tape. Uh, uh, I I uh, it, it does bother me because uh, I show up with my interviews, but they nobody saw. It was a great finish. Mm. If it would have if they would have showed the finish, it would have helped me get over more. But uh, I don't know if they just didn't think that that I was going to be able to carry it. Uh, or, 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 or what, you know, when I got back, what was ironic to me is that I, that's when I found out that they didn't tape it. Gorilla Monsoon was gone. Vince was gone. Everybody, all the agents were gone. Uh, I just didn't think, I thought, I thought they just made a transition, uh, there was going to be just a, a quick transition where I drop it to another heel. Mm. Uh, but uh, they never gave me an explanation. They, they just said, to, you know, they ran out of tape. <laughs> when do you run out of tape? You know, uh, mm. give me a break. Yeah. Do, so, so, I mean, what's, what's your theory then of why it wasn't recorded? Do you think they just, if, if I mean, you tell me what your theory is, in fact. Well, my theory is that the, uh, they weren't gonna uh, give me the big push, and 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 they didn't realize that I was gonna get over as, as much as I did. Uh, but uh, there there was a time when uh, Bobby Heenan told me that my t-shirts were uh, were outselling Hulk's t-shirts, and uh, I was getting more fan mail than the Hulk was. Uh, and you know, <laughs> Hulk Hogan was Vince's Thank baby. you, Tito. Thank you, Tito. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tito. <laughs> <laughs> more fan mail and more t-shirts than Hulk Hogan <laughs> maybe he didn't realize that uh, Bobby Heenan was uh, infamous for uh, those kind of gags you know something and I was thinking about that that I know that maybe Bobby Heenan could have told him that and he knew Heenan from the AWA so he absolutely should have known better you know and, and uh, tito i i like you i like you i like tito santana a lot i like him even better when he's not telling me he sold more t-shirts than hogan but i like him <laughs> and you know he's like you know oh they the, the finish was great and they i would have gotten over even bigger had they shown the finish like i don't remember the finish being that great and it's, it's not like they went out of their way to sabotage one of their own guys i also like the fact that you know well, they didn't give me an explanation. They said they ran out of tape. Tito, that's an explanation. <laughs> oh, and, and you were there, and I think what you told me was that was the only match that they filmed that night. So it's not like they had taped three hours of footage. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I mean, then he's like, oh, Vince was gone. Gorilla was gone. Vince never came to the Boston Garden. Get out of here. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure by then the agents were gone. But just give me a break on that whole thing. Anyway, ah. <laughs> uh, we're going to do the 1984 year-end retrospective awards. I want to bring on one of my... I, I've been saving this show for him because I like this show so much, and he's always a great guest. Uh, the man known as Tamale, Max T Max Levy. Max, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. And yeah, looking forward to this, and, and I've got my winners ready. <laughs> Max has been running around on the Facebook group telling people that he sells more T-shirts than me. Oh, absolutely. That's what Bobby Heenan told me, so it must be true. <laughs> oh, man. All right, let, let's talk about what this is. Um, we're looking back 
at the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Awards and the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards, and we're giving out retroactive awards to both of them. Uh, there are times I am going to totally agree with the whoever got the award, and there are going to be times I disagree. As usual, uh, politics plays a hand in all this, and that, that goes both ways. I think that goes with the Observer and Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and we'll talk more about that as we go on. It is only for United States and Canada-based wrestlers and promotions. What happened in Japan and Mexico made a big deal in the Observer, and it was ignored in Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And really, that's just not the stick to wrestling audience. We've never done a Mexico show. We've never done a Japan show. So we're keeping it to, you know, pro uh, United States and Canada only. I want to start with the inspirational wrestler of the year. This is a Pro Wrestling Illustrated Award. No observer. Max, who did you have? Well, you know, I don't usually look to you know, wrestlers or athletes or entertainers for much inspiration. So it was a little hard to come up with something. You don't. I know. Hard to believe. But uh, (laughs) I ultimately went with, um, you know, the Von Erics, you know, Kerry, Kevin, Mike, collectively, just because, you know, David died. He was their brother, their friend. And, you know, that had to take a lot out of them emotionally. But they they still persevered and went forward. And not thinking about it in any terms of, you know, Kerry had to win the belt for, for David or anything like that. But just in the sense that, you know, they had a huge personal loss, but they still managed to, to keep going and, uh, you know, still put on the show. The show must go on. I like that one. I think that's a really good pick. Before I get to Steve, you know, I'm not even trying to be funny here, okay? You, you mentioned that you don't look to entertainers as, you know, being your uh, uh, moralistic compass or anything like that. You know who really disappointed me, and I'm not even trying to be funny here, is Louis C.K., like, he seemed like a, a, a nice, funny, down-to-earth guy. And then you hear about him. This is like five, six years ago. Oh, yeah. Just like doing the creepiest thing imaginable in front. You know, he starts uh, pleasuring himself in front of two girls who work for him. And I, I was really disappointed because he seemed like a, a decent guy. Yeah, at the very least, somebody completely lacking any judgment. I mean, why in the world would you do that? And if you did it, why would you think somebody else would be impressed by it? If that's yeah, what he really. was aiming for, I guess. <laughs> aiming for <Wow. laughs> yeah walked right into that one ah <laughs> uh, poking max's eye out when anyway steve who did you have uh, most inspirational wrestler um well I, I guess in a kayfabe sense i would go with uh, sergeant slaughter for the way he defended the valor of the united states with his epic battle against aaron sheik in 1984 and then Nikolai Volkov, he stuck up for us again. Again, I mean, he was a true patriot, that Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, he got my Pro Wrestling Illustrated version of this. And, then, you know, there wasn't a one. I went with Slaughter for the same reasons that you did, that, you know, he was formerly a bad guy, but kind of burned it all down in order to take on the Iron Sheik, and he did so quite successfully. And then Volkov jumps into the picture, and he's challenged again. If you wanted to go in a different direction, I mean, Bob Armstrong suffered such a serious real-life injury in 1984 that he was able to come back from. So I wanted to give him an honorable mention. Yeah, and you can th- you can see we're just so, so excited about Bob Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was good. To, yeah, I didn't. That was one of those things I didn't really hear about until much later, and uh, I hadn't realized that it was as serious as it was. 
Yeah, that was one of the first things I remember reading in the Observer that, you know, Bob really might not have made it, and they're turning it into an angle on TV, and if things had gone the wrong way, old Ted DiBiase just killed this guy for real. Something you want to avoid. Okay, Mm -hmm. comeback wrestler of the year. I don't think it was in either uh, the Observer or PWI by this time, but we can retroactively go back and pick somebody. Max, who do you have? I picked Gino Hernandez because he walked away from wrestling in the middle of 1983 and burned some bridges in the process, but got back into world class in the middle of 1984 and was immediately pushed as really effectively the top heel. They gave him the American title and the Texas title at the same time. Eventually, he was also simultaneously one-third of the six-man champs with Chris Adams and Jake Roberts. So to go from that to being a primetime player, you know, he was my pick. And then I have honorable mentions for... uh, Don Kernodal, who you know went to the WWF in 1983 and was used as a guy losing on TV and working prelims and then went back to Crockett and was immediately pushed like he was somebody again. And then I think Wahoo McDaniel, uh, you know, that heel turn, you know, he went from a guy who was kind of fading out a little bit to this angry, grumpy, mean heel. Uh, and it's really seemed to revitalize him. Two really good picks with Kernodal, or I should say not picks, but honorable mentions with Kernodal and McDaniel, and you're right about both of them. You know, Kernodal really did bounce back, and he won the NWA Tag Team Championships with both Bob Orton Jr. and Ivan Koloff, and then he had the big angle at the end of the year where he turned, you know, again, after being buried in the WWF, and yeah, Wahoo who, you know, I would look at him on TV in 1983 and, you know, start making Buddy Hackett jokes, and, you know, he turned it around in 84. Good for him. All right, Steve, what do you got? I'd also go with Wahoo from from the perspective of, uh, you know, he kind of followed that mold, that mid-Atlantic mold of, uh, I think Paul Jones was maybe the first, you know, long-time fan favorite, goes bad maybe near the end of his career. And then uh, they also uh, had done the same uh, thing with the Briscoes. The Briscoes, of course, had been legendary good guys. They kind of went bad. And now Wahoo, out of the blue, is, is doing it. And uh, I, I think it gave him... You know, the, it gave him something new. Uh, gave him it gave him a new uh, spin on his career, and uh, he did this for a while, and then he became a good guy for one final run in his career. You know, I used to swear up and down that that turning Wahoo was a huge, huge mistake, and I've softened on that a little bit because it's a story that I think most people can understand. Like Wahoo, you know, he's near the end of the line, and he's not feeling good about it. And it starts to change him. The same thing happened in Mid-South with Mr. Wrestling 2. And I think it's a great storyline. And again, there are some guys I feel like you should never turn. And Wahoo in the Carolinas is close to being absolutely in the middle of that list. But like I said, I've, I've, I've softened on things a little bit. And you know, I, I always thought it was a great turn and a great storyline. Uh, my pick for Comeback Wrestler of the Year... About 30 years ago, I heard the expression that time goes by faster as you get older. And I was like, no, a year is a year, a month is a month, no. And that turned out to be absolutely true because a year flies by now that I'm in my late 50s. Flies by. A year was an eternity when I was younger. And when Gino Hernandez disappeared from Southwest Championship Wrestling and was on a milk carton for a solid year... 
I, you know, I was like, where is this guy? What's going on? What happened to Gino Hernandez? Well, what happened was he got out of the wrestling business and uh, started to run a nightclub in, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, which, you know, now cracks me up. He went from one job where you don't have to get up early in the morning and turned around and found another one. Good for him. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going with Gino Hernandez. I remember watching World Class in, I want to say, uh, late May 1984, and they're getting ready for the Jimmy Garvin-Chris Adams blow-off match, and Gino Hernandez shows up, and I just popped like crazy. And like Max said, I mean, they put a rocket on this guy like like I've never seen before. Within weeks, he is the holder of both the American and Texas Heavyweight uh, Championship, and World Class desperately needed to build a new heel because, I mean, I know the Freebirds were still drawing, not like they were in 1983, but by by the time the Texas Stadium show came and went, it was time for something else, and they found the something else. Definitely. Most embarrassing wrestler, believe it or not, Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not have this. This is <laughs> a, an Observer Award. Max, who did you take? Well, I'm going to... Uh preface this by saying my judge of most embarrassing wrestlers to just think, you know, if I was watching wrestling and somebody who didn't watch came in the room, you know, how would I feel about them seeing this person? And like a person you were trying to impress yeah, even like, I mean, yeah, this is slightly out of the time frame, but in this, you know, I, I was known at work, you know, as the, as the wrestling guy. And in the spring of 1996, uh, you know, a coworker of mine comes up to me and says, Hey, I was watching nitro last night. And there was this guy on there who had a hole cut in his pants um, around his butt called the Booty Man. Dude, you watch this stuff? And I just like <laughs> wanted to be pretty much anywhere else. And so I'm using that as the measuring stick here. I'm sure that like, you know, <laughs> Stephen Regal and Eddie Guerrero were on like five minutes before or after and he completely missed them because he turned it off over the former Brutus Beefcake. But I picked as most embarrassing the missing link just because what exactly was he supposed to be? It's like a big jacked up dude with his <laughs> face painted. And we're just supposed to believe that he gets around in real life, you know, walking around like this. I mean, it's like, okay, maybe Kamala really is from Africa. You know, maybe George <laughs> Steele, you know, it's like if you, if you didn't know him from wrestling and you just saw him, he's just some big old guy, but you know, missing link. It's like, how do you, I don't know. I just had the feeling that if anybody I knew saw it, uh, that they would just roll their eyes, you know, to the back of their head and over again. And I want to give two honorable mentions. One, uh, Kevin Sullivan and his entire crew in Florida, because <laughs> everything about it was just so over the top. And then I realized he's a legend and that he brought a lot to the table. But you know, anybody I knew that didn't know wrestling that saw Dusty Rhodes couldn't believe that this big, fat, ugly guy was the biggest star. And, uh, yeah, it would. How do you explain it? Is the thing. So, um, you know, the charisma was there and the mic work was there, but you know, to an outsider, I, he seemed like somebody that would not really have been, you know, it basically just something that they could use to rip on you for being a wrestling fan over. But Link is my number one. 
You know what? You talked me into Missing Link. Missing Link is now my number one. <laughs> he was on my honorable mention list, but you're right. He is the most embarrassing. And if any of you have the Wrestling Observer yearbook from 1990, there is an anecdote I have in there about how I was dating a young wrestler, a girl, and she calls me up on Saturday morning, and Dusty and Sapphire are on doing their act, and she calls me like, you watch this? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> That's not the good stuff. But anyway, Steve, who, most embarrassing. Who was who yours? Well, well, first off, I'm outraged that uh, the two of you could talk about Missing Link that way. I, I bought that hook, line, and sinker. I mean... Now, you live in perpetual outrage, Steve. Jeez. <laughs> he, he just he just seemed like so so organic and so uh, like he just we just maybe lived on a commune or some weird place, but a <laughs> great ta- great talent nonetheless. Uh, my- well, you know what? Despite all of his eccentricities, he could put that makeup on perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> he was a savage, but he was a thinking man savage. <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyhow, anyhow uh, my most embarrassing would have to be uh, the 1984 version of Brutus Beefcake. Not the barber quite yet, but uh, he was doing yeah. the uh, kind of the male dancer uh, gimmick with Johnny V uh, as his manager. And, uh, you know, at the time, I just didn't really understand, like, who is this guy? What is he, what's the point of him? And uh, even in some of these old observers from 84, I've read through some of them, and a lot of people didn't realize that this was Dizzy Hogan, who had wrestled in the AWA before and had wrestled in other territories. They really didn't know who this beefcake guy was, but, uh, you know, he he did improve. And I I did enjoy him as the, the lackey or the Robin and the tag team with Valentine later on, but... Uh, I hated the barber, and I, I definitely didn't like this 1984 version of Beefcake. By the way, John, who, who got bumped out to, on your list to make room for Link? Uh, well, I'll tell you what. It was Brutus Beefcake. He was my <laughs> number one, and you talked me out of him. Because like Steve said, first of all, I didn't. I had seen pictures of Dizzy Hogan. Now, I never put two and two together until I got the Observer because they, they changed his look so much. But um, yeah, the guy who did not speak and was from San Francisco, and he was a male stripper. But more than that, he had the name Brutus Beefcake, which was just so over the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, nothing before, you know, it's just like, you know, a a new low, if you will, for pro wrestling. And he would have gotten mine. But like I said, the, you know, the missing link uh, makes no sense. Another guy who I think uh, deserves an honorable mention. Now, I think I get a little bit of a reputation for piling on on both Bob Backlund and Ole Anderson. And a couple of guys are going to make that list today because Thunderbolt Patterson, this guy had to be seen to be believed. I checked him on Wiki today, and they said that in 1984, he was only 43 years old, which means one of two things. A, they're totally wrong, <laughs> or B, he is the, you know, they, they might have gotten worked. I've seen wrong ages on Wiki before. Or B, he was the world's oldest 43-year-old. And it really is so true that, you know, people aged differently back then because, you know, people drank more, they smoked more, they no matter what you were around, secondhand smoke a lot of the time, you know, less healthy diets. So, I mean, but Thunderbolt was had to be seen to be believed. He was so bad, it was entertaining because it was funny he was so bad. Uh, another honorable mention, maybe not the man himself, but, well, we'll go with the man himself. 
only wrestled one match, but Fritz Von Erich. I mean, that match at Texas Stadium where Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes are literally sent flying by the punches of this, you know, overweight, 50-something-year-old old man. I mean, it was just, you know, you, you roll with certain things in wrestling, but, you know, this was just, again, way over the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Fritz, I have a feeling that, I don't know what his age exactly was, but I have a feeling it's a little bit like Thunderbolt in that yeah. he was not as old in actuality as you thought he was just because he was so broken down. Yeah, he lived a rough wrestling life, and I do know that he was a heavy, heavy smoker. By the way, before I go on, I want to throw this in. I should have done this uh, to begin with. A lot of this is going to have to do with how much spotlight you have. Like, if you uh, are wrestling in Vancouver for... Steve, what was the name of the Vancouver promoter? Al Tomko. Al Tomko, thank you. If you are just on TV wrestling for Tomko... No one sees you, so it doesn't matter if your interviews are bad or whatever. But if you're in the WWF, if you're in a major promotion, Mid-South, Mid-Atlantic, these are the guys we're we're focused on. Although, if you were really bad or really good in a Memphis or a Portland, something like that, you you qualify, but you're just just a little bit less qualified. So, wanted to throw that in. Max, who was the worst on interviews in 1984? I went with Bob Backlund because he was never a great interview when he was champion, but at least he had kind of a championship aura to make up for those deficiencies. Once he lost the belt and basically got buried, it was actually kind of kind of sad. He just seemed like he was completely the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, the whole soft-spoken, almost at times muttering monotone of his, it just did not work anymore. And, and, I, I don't know. To me, he was there. There are plenty of guys who weren't great, but at least you could find some entertainment value or they had something else that they could bring to the table. Bob didn't have anything else to bring to the table. Bob was my pick. Spoiler alert. And there was a time where I felt a little bit bad for Bob Backlund because there was a time in, I want to say, 95, 96. Ric Flair was the worst interview in the business. Yes, you heard that. Ric Flair was the worst interview in the business because they didn't give him anything to talk about. He would just go out there every week, mean Gene, whoa, and that was it. And I'm like, this is not entertaining television. They didn't, Bob didn't have anything to talk about once the whole, you know, Iron Sheik Hogan thing was settled. Was settled. At the same time, he got my vote or, you know, I'm giving him the award because he was so bad anyway. He was indefensively bad. But with that, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Steve, I'd like to hear who you have for Worst Interview in 1984. Well, uh, just for those listening at home, uh, The Observer had Snuka winning that, Thunderbolt second, and Backlund third. I, I guess I'll go with Backlund uh, first also, just mainly because I think the first Pro Wrestling USA show debuted in New York, uh, WPIX, I think, in the fall of '84. And uh, you are correct. And and th- and and that was the most embarrassing of all when uh, Bob came out with I think Jack Reynolds and and they were you know talking about Bob like he was the uncrowned champion and he's talking about what was stolen from him and it, to me it was the most embarrassing interview that I can remember in, in wrestling ever. So I'll just leave it at that. It was it was so cringy. He's sitting there with that 
a forest green suit. It was a three-piece suit, and those had been out of style for at least four years. Mm-hmm. And he's clenching his fist at the camera, and he's like, uh, they took the title from me. Right. They <laughs> took the title from me. Like, And you can't just say, of course you can say WWF, you're at war with them, but they don't do that. And yeah, Backlund gets mine as of, as of yesterday morning. It was going to be Thunderbolt Patterson, but as again, as bad as Patterson's interviews were, they were hilarious. I mean, they were worth getting up and watching because they were such a train wreck. Bob wasn't even entertaining. For my honorable mentions, Mike Von Erich, look, I know he's new to the business, but at the same time, he grew up in the business. I mean, if you're a 14, 15-year-old Mike Von Erich, you're, you already should be practicing your promos because you see your older brothers on TV and you figure, oh, I got to be next, right? And lastly, I want to mention Paul Ellering, another guy I'm going to be beating up on uh, throughout these next two podcasts Itch. because he got so much television time in Georgia and he was so awful. So he absolutely deserves a, a, a dishonorable mention, if you will. War. Uh, First tag team, the Observer had the Crusher and Baron Von Raschke. Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not have this award. Max, who did you go with? Well, I will say that, you know, as bad as Baron and Crusher looked to people from outside the AWA, and I'm not going to say, you know, every AWA fan was on board with them. You know, they had so much history and they were the wacky guys everybody would imitate. You know, nobody wanted to imitate Vern Gagne or, or Jim Brunzel or Greg Gagne. You'd interview, you know, you'd imitate Crusher, Baron, Mad Dog, you know, with your friends and so on. So uh, they're not really on my list. I went with, and this might be a little surprising, I went with the new Fabulous Ones because oh. <laughs> the idea there was, you know, Steve Kern and Stan Lane wanted, uh, you know, a bigger cut, I believe. I think they wanted more money uh, generally off the off the gates, but I think they also wanted a bigger cut of the gimmick money. And so they ended up leaving and Jerry Jarrett, you know, puts together Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert as the new fabulous ones. Uh, And it's basically his way of saying to Stan and Steve, you know, it wasn't you guys the fans cared about. It was the gimmick they cared about, the packaging, the promotion, Jackie Fargo's endorsement. So kind of like when Tom Wolpat and John Schneider left the Dukes of Hazzard and then they brought in those two other guys for like half a season and it completely bombed. He basically brought in new fabulous ones to show them they were expendable and ended up finding out just how valuable they were because the new fabs were just basically dead on arrival. You know, I actually have the new fabs honorable mention in my most underrated, but the more I think about it, Max, everything you said was true. I mean, that tag team bombed royally. They were good in the ring. Uh, and it was like they were tr- desperately trying to show people that, hey, you know, these are two good-looking guys, but look at them fight against the PYTs. They're going all over the building. They're hitting each other with chairs. These guys are tough. And in reality, after absorbing what you just said, that's just overcompensation. Yeah, and, you know, the, the whole idea was, you know, Stan and Steve, you know, a couple of good-looking guys. But, you know, Tommy had that rep a few years earlier. But not, by 1984, you know, he's starting to notice he'll be put on weight and uh he also at that point like i think he'd done this a little bit sooner but his his haircut you know he had those bangs that i think he grew because his forehead was so gigged up but it was not a good you know not a good looking uh haircut for a guy that was uh not really needing any help in in looking less appealing so it's like how can you put tommy rich on the same level of where kern and lane were uh and try to sell this as a better duo 
I have gathered praise from my old tape list where I, I mentioned that 1984 Tommy Rich looked like an overweight sheepdog, <laughs> which is exactly yeah. what he looked like. And him being in that tag team, it's like, you know, I'm used to this guy, 81, 82, 83, being one of the the top babyface, not one of the top babyface in Georgia. And now he's taken a step down in promotion, and he's teaming with Eddie Gilbert, who was a guy who was you know, kind of nothing in the WWF, so it really looked like, and by the way, Tommy Rich gets a mention on my most washed-up list, mm-hmm. but you're right. I mean, Max, you know, they they might have had some fun matches with the PYTs. They might have had some, you know, fun, cringy interviews when Tommy Rich compares the fans rejecting the new Fabulous Ones to Tommy rejecting his mom's new boyfriend, <laughs> And yes, this happened. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, good point. I mean, you know, if the idea in wrestling is to get over, then the new Fabulous Ones, I mean, they, they failed in every way possible in, in doing that. Steve, who did you have? Well, uh, you know, I don't think we've talked about um, the, 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 the original Fabulous Ones as far as uh, Steve Kern and Stan Lane uh, much on our show. Do you? Uh, I, I wonder if they could have been the inspiration for that long-running skit on SNL, the uh, ambiguously gay duo or whatever they <laughs> were. I mean, it seems like there was something in common there with that long-running skit. I have, I have not seen that skit. I, I stopped doing it, but like after the 80s or like even in the 80s like every four or five years i would try to get back into saturday night live and i just couldn't it was just <laughs> i never i thought it, it was not funny when eddie murphy left that show was doa but i'm sorry let's stick to wrestling john all right uh, steve your turn getting getting back to uh, worst tag team you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but uh, I guess I'll go with the Samoans. Uh, you know, when they came back for their second big run, uh, to me, it was almost like letting out a groan. It was like, oh, here they come again. I mean, the first run in 1980 was very exciting, very impactful, and uh, they were dominant. And this time it was just like one mishap after another. I think uh, Afa broke his hip or broke his ankle, or at one point he was on the shelf, and they brought in the Samula, the third member. And uh, the only thing I, I remember that was really any, anything worthwhile that they did was when Albano uh, plunked uh, you know, Afa over the head with a chair, and the chair just remained on his head. I mean, that was a really nice visual. But, uh, you know, later on in 84, I mean, uh, these guys were wrestling Hogan uh, on, on uh, you know, smaller shows. I know in Binghamton they had a match between – it was either Hogan against Sika or Hogan against Afa. And they, they were just – they just had run their course. I think people were just tired of them on the East Coast. I thought about the Samoans. I really thought about the Samoans. They – you're right. They had run their – course and the Samoans as baby faces I mean that was a huge flop mm-hmm. and then uh, what is it Pro Wrestling USA brings them back uh, brings them in as if that had never happened you know it, it, the Samoans like you said they they definitely run their course I almost went with the Blackjacks, Blackjack Mulligan and Blackjack Lonza got back together briefly in 1984, but it was too brief. So ultimately, because they were AWA Tag Team Champions, I did agree with the Observer. I went with Baron Von Raschke and the Crusher, which kind of goes to show you that 
1984, there really weren't any, like, oh my god, this team is so bad teams. I mean, I couldn't think of one that was together for a while and just that bad, so I guess that's yeah. a good thing. One of my honorable mentions, just because I wanted to take shots at them, but I think they only teamed up for, like, you know, two or three weeks, but uh, Buck Zumoff and Jules Strongbow got multiple appearances <laughs> on World Class as a team, and I, I couldn't let that go unmentioned. Oh, my God. You know, you really could. I really could have gone with Iceman Parsons and Buck Zumhoff because they were awful and they won the world class tag team yeah. championships. At least Iceman was over. But I, I mean, yeah, you know, this was a hot promotion. I realize per Cornette, the money was not maybe as good as we would have thought, but it was a short trip territory. So you didn't have a lot of expenses. And, you know, if you were in the right spot, you you made some money. But You'd figure you could get guys better than Buck Zumoff and Jewel Strongbow. <laughs> I, you know, Max, I really remember in 1984 uh, them bringing in Jewel Strongbow. And I'm not smart to the business at all, but I'm like, what is this promotion doing <laughs> bringing him in? And I was like, you, you know, they can't figure out someone better than Jewel Strongbow. And I, you know, before I even heard the first allegation against Buck Zumhoff in real life, I always hated him. I always thought he was just like this huge phony with his stupid radio and his stupid jumpsuit. So the two guys I just didn't like. But uh, all right, so worst wrestler. Not, Pro Wrestling Illustrated does not have this. The Wrestling Observer newsletter went with Ivan Putski. Max, who do you got? Worst wrestler? Um, you know, it's uh, it was a hard one to pick. There were plenty of guys that, you know, were not uh, not so good. I went with, uh, and Ivan Putski was a good good one. I might even switch to that. I went with, uh, with Ox Baker for his Georgia push, which I, I have seen retrospectively. I didn't see it at the time. Uh, but you know, he could barely move and, you know, where had he been for the last few years? He was pretty much washed up, you know, working in, uh, Indiana for bruiser. And I think, you know, some, even some outlaws, you know, honorable mention, you know, 1984 was the year when Andre really seemed to get to the point where he could barely move. And when he did move, it hurt, it was like painful, you know, Thunderbolt Patterson, complete desperation, you know, hail Mary pass by Oli that, you know, ended up incomplete. And then, uh, you know, Mid-Atlantic, you know, I'm a, uh, I will not knock Jimmy Valiant. He's a longtime guilty pleasure of mine, but you didn't need Bugsy McGraw and Rufus R. Jones in the same territory with him at the same time, because, <laughs> yes, you know, both those guys, you know, even if, you know, Rufus was, can, could be fun on the mic, but maybe unintentionally fun. Uh, they were not, uh, uh, you know, anybody you wanted to see in the ring. No, definitely not. You know what? Before we, I moved to Steve, I also wanted to mention, Honorable mention of my worst tag team. I think I saw them wrestle once, but they were in Georgia when Georgia first came back after losing the TBS spot. And the main feud was Ole Anderson and Thunderbolt Patterson against two guys known as the New York Assassins. Oh, get it? New York Assassin. Oh, that's hilarious. No, it's not. So both of those teams at least yeah. deserve an honorable mention. But I'm sorry, Steve. Go ahead. Who's your worst wrestler? 
Well, I will say, I think it's it's funny in the um, Observer that year, they had two categories, most washed up and worst wrestler. And, uh, you know, Dave, as the years went on, I think the following year, I think they kind of merged it maybe just to worst wrestler. Um, I, I guess, uh, sadly, I would go with Jay Strong just because, you know, I, we've seen those tapes and we've talked about them on National Expansion. You know, the... Um, just seeing like Jay Strongbow like at the Cap Center, staying alone in the corner waiting for an opponent to come in, and whether it's Jesse Ventura or it's uh, Paul Orndorff or Mass Superstar, he just takes a beating and he looks so miserable standing in the ring. I think he, he feels like the Federation owes him a whole lot more. I mean, he did uh, you know he did get that great job of being a road agent for the next you know ten to fifteen years, but uh, he just he looks so miserable in his final in-ring matches. You know, Steve, Strongbow was a really good pick. I did not go with Strongbow because he was pretty much, like, out of the ring by, like, June, July. Right. Um, that That's what saved him, maybe, from getting it from me. And everything you said was true. And the saddest part was, you know, he was a legend. He was a legend in the Northeast. And here he is. You know, that, that's something I think we could have avoided seeing. You could have had, you know, someone else in the role Chief J. Strongbow was playing in 1984. Worst wrestler, I can't disagree with Ivan Putsky. <laughs> he mm-hmm. was awful. I might have gone with Blackjack Lonza, except he wasn't in the ring that often in 1984. They, he pretty much gave up, I want to say March or April, but he was unbelievably bad. Yeah, it's kind of crazy they would even bring him back. Yeah. That was his huge baby face run. <laughs> Blackjack Lonza with the white hat and the white chaps. That was something to be seen, but you know, <laughs> once that went bye-bye, it's like, okay, show's over. Thunderbolt Patterson, they kind of knew how to use him. Like, they would have him exclusively in tag team matches, and he'd be in the ring for about a minute. It was a brutal minute, but at least they, they kind of hid him. Uh, I don't think Jesse Ventura gets enough credit for being absolutely awful in the ring. And, you know, coming into 1984, he was terrible, and then he started having health problems. But ultimately, my winner. In 1985, I would watch WTBS, and I would ask myself, okay, why is superstar Billy Graham at the end of the bench in Paul Jones's army? Like, don't they understand who this is? And I now, you know almost 40 years later, realized that if you did not know who superstar Billy Graham was a long time ago, seven or eight years ago, you'd look at this guy and you'd be like, you know, what? why is he even out here? And then we get to the part where the match starts. Holy crap, is he bad in 1984. I saw his matches in, in Florida. He got a big push there as Kevin, you know, as part of Kevin Sullivan's army, and then he turned on Sullivan, and Graham was just hopeless in the ring. And to think that, you know, three years later, the WWF brought him back with the intention of giving him a big push is just unbelievable. Yeah, unfortunate. It is. All right, least, your personal least favorite wrestler. This is an Observer Award. Max, who do you got? So I looked at it almost with two winners. One, as an Observer Award, my personal least favorite wrestler. And then also kind of taking it as like PWI's most hated uh, for, a you know, as like, you know, who is a, a, a good heel. I think we actually have a separate category for it, but maybe uh, I'm, I'm getting them mixed together. But as far as like my least favorite wrestler was concerned, Nothing against him personally, but Brad Rangens was just 
<laughs> unbelievably boring and uncharismatic. And every couple of years uh, during the 80s, they would try to push him again. And in 1984, he was absent for a little while because he was actually one of the coaches for the U.S. Olympic wrestling team that won a ton of oh, medals wow, in Los Angeles. Yeah, he had. Uh, he was a coach because he had been on the 76 team and he was on the 80 team that didn't make it. So uh, he got involved with the coaching and then they tried to make a big thing about the fact that, hey, you know, he was one of the coaches. You know, he helped these guys win gold medals, started pushing him again. I think they even gave him a, a main event at the St. Paul Civic Center with Rick Martel and nobody wanted to see him. You know, he just <laughs> didn't bring anything at all to the table. He's actually a very good trainer of, of pro wrestlers. He uh, helped train a lot of guys, Brock Lesnar among, among them. But he just, uh, you know, as a wrestler, he was just nobody he wanted to see in the AWA didn't get it and just kept pushing him. All right. You know, it, it makes perfect sense in a weird way, and especially in Vern Gagne's mind. You know, it's 1984. It's an Olympic year. Once again, let's push Brad Reigns, except it doesn't work. And my God, the thought of Rick Martell versus Brad Reigns in the main event at a major arena. Good Lord, that is embarrassing. But anyway, Steve, who, do you, who is your least favorite wrestler in 1984? Well, I just want to add to that for those that don't know, uh, Brad Reigns did have a short uh, run in the WWF in 87, and he was basically working opening match matches. And, you know, if they were smart, they probably should have hired him to help train guys or something like that. But um, it's, uh, it's ironic you mentioned that because I think the main reason they hired him was that he was Vern's main trainer at his wrestling camp. Oh. By then, so they wanted to put a bullet in that by getting Brad out of the AWA. Oh, the WWF would never do something like that. <laughs> I remember when Honky Tonk Man wouldn't job for Randy Savage on the 19... 19- 88 NBC special, you know, my reaction was, okay, well, guess what? You're wrestling Brad Rangans every night, and he's going to turn you into sawdust. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Steve, who is your guy? Uh, you know, again, uh, I hate to be uh, a broken record here, but my, my most hated wrestler would have to be Bob Backlund, just because every time he was on the TV, it was just like cringeworthy. It was, it was embarrassing. I felt bad for him. It was almost like, it was almost like watching a guy who got fired from a job beg for his job back on national TV. It, it was just embarrassing. If you had asked me at any point in 1984, who was your least favorite wrestler? I would have said Bob Backlund. And I have, you know, that that was 40 years ago, obviously, and I've learned to have a lot more respect for Bob Backlund. But if you had asked me in 1982 or 1983 who my most hated wrestler was, it would have been Bob Backlund. I mean, by 84... I was beyond sick of him, and, you know, not to bash Bob again, but, you know, I've said this before, the wrestling business was changing radically in one direction, and Bob was running in the other direction, and no kidding, you know, you're spending a lot of time at home in Connecticut now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Your favorite wrestler, Max, who was your favorite wrestler in 1984? The Observer gave it to Ric Flair, and the Pro Wrestling Illustrated didn't have it. You know, it, at the, if you'd asked me in 1984, um, probably thinking about it on one hand from a PWI standpoint, it would have been Hulk Hogan, you know, but at the same time, you know, the Road Warriors came into the AWA and even though they were booked as heels, everybody loved them. You know, they were, it's kind of weird looking at them now and, and seeing them that way, but they were just considered so cool. So looking at it strictly through 1984 eyes, I, I would say, you know, you know, probably the the Road Warriors. Looking at it strictly as a, an, a as an observer reader, uh, you know Hulk Hogan as a uh, as a PWI reader. 
All right, but like for you personally, the Road Warriors were your favorites? Mm-hmm. You know. All right, now let me ask you something. You grew up or right around the, the Twin Cities. Did the people know that the Road Warriors were really from, from that area? Not universally. I think a lot of people okay. knew that they were uh, – you know, I think I think a lot of most people may have thought that you know, hey, they're from Chicago. But if you went to the matches, you would inevitably talk to somebody or hear somebody who, you know, went to school with them, knew their family, knew they were local, and you know, you'd always see how you know, they lived here. You know, especially once they started working for Vern, so you people would see them around town, and you know, I think it was kind of a, a poorly kept secret locally that they were they were Minnesotans, not not Chicagoans. But if you just ask like the average fan at a show, they'd probably say Chicago. But if you dug a little deeper, uh, you'd you'd find the the Twin Cities connection. All right, and I'm sure if they were just walking around town, is they're going to be tough to miss in 1984. <laughs> exactly. Steve, who's your favorite wrestler? Roddy Piper, without question. Uh, he just. Uh, you know, with all the new shows that WWF had and all the special shows they had, like the shows on MTV and uh, uh, all the live house shows and things that were on, uh, Roddy Piper was always the guy that you really wanted to see. I mean, you had no idea what was going to come out of his mouth or what kind of a confrontation he'd get involved in. And uh, he was the most exciting, in my opinion. Roddy Piper is on my honorable mention list, along with Michael Hayes and Greg Valentine. But in 1984, for me, and it had been this way since probably before 1981, Ric Flair was my favorite wrestler. And, you know, he might have had his best year in 1984. I mean, the territories were still alive and well. He had more experience as NWA champion. He wrestled all comers, good guys, bad guys. It didn't matter. He, you know, wrestled in every territory, you know, while Hulk Hogan was wrestling the same, you know, handful of guys kind of all year. You know, Ric Flair had a wide variety of opponents. So, you know, I thought Flair was the ultimate NWA champion, great on interviews, the best in the ring, and you know Ric Flair was my favorite by a long stretch. Worst manager, believe it or not, Pro Wrestling Illustrated didn't have this, but the Observer did. They went with Mr. Fuji. Max, who did you go with? I went with a tie, Mr. Fuji and Sheik Adnan El Casey. I thought that, you know, Casey, when you still had Heenan around. You know, as a guy in the mix, I mean, obviously getting a huge push, you know, that was one thing. But somehow when Heenan left and now he was the main manager, in some respects, really the only one, just how lame he was really kind of got shown. All the interviews were the same, just him coming out and shouting. And I'll admit at the time, I you could never have made me believe he was really Iraqi. Finding that out was a gigantic <laughs> shock later. <laughs> I, I, you know what? He was on my list uh, uh, for honorable mention, and you made a really good point. Like, okay, when Heenan's there, this guy's kind of in the background, and all right, you can deal with him. But now Heenan's gone, and this guy's getting a whole lot more spotlight, and that must have been rough. And then, you know, granted, this is getting more into 1985, but he went from having, you know, Brody and Abby, in it, and then pretty soon it was Mass Superstar. And King Tonga, but then pretty soon it was Boris Zukov and Nord the Barbarian and a very old Mongolian stomper. So even as time went on, you know, before the promotion went completely down the drain, the talent level of who he had was starting to decline and it 
just made the whole package with him look worse. Yeah, he was he was really bad. He's supposed to be a really good guy, but he was. Yeah, I remember watching him on WPIX before I even knew what a good manager, bad manager was. I'm thinking this guy was awful. But anyway, Steve, who's your worst manager? Well, I wanted to ask Max. Uh, didn't he also have for a hot minute uh, Chris Markov? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that would have been in '85. That he had Boris Ukov and Chris Markov as a team, if you can believe it. Yeah, not good. <laughs> My worst manager would probably be uh, Tojo Yamamoto, just because uh, Mr. Fuji could probably uh, work, uh, <laughs> just, just lap him a few times with his great uh, ability. So, Tojo's a good pick. Tojo was absolutely awful by 1984. Uh, Mr. Fuji, if you, I couldn't argue with you if you said Mr. Fuji, especially considering that he, you know. He took up a lot of spotlight in the WWF, although he had just started being a manager at the end of 1984. So that's why I'm not going with him. Johnny Valiant or Johnny V was was atrocious. (laughs) Paul Jones was atrocious. Ultimately, because once again, he got so much mic time, Paul Ellering, and that endless feud he had going with Ole Anderson was just awful. And, you know, he started in Georgia, and then he went to the AWA, and he was no better in the AWA. He just didn't have Ole to bounce off of. I always liked Johnny V. I mean, just like Brian last said, I mean, sometimes he would just say those weird things. You had, couldn't really know what he was trying to, why he was saying it. But um, He was like that in real life. Yeah, he's, he's quite, quite the character. But uh, but, but the, you know, the Johnny V you saw on TV, that's who he was. Yeah, he, he was quite, quite the character. But uh, something that you guys maybe wouldn't remember, uh, both of you, um, I was reading some of these old observers from 84. At one point, Meltzer said that uh, uh, Vince was going to bring in Sheik Adnan LKC, and wouldn't that have been interesting? Well, anything to take something away yeah. from the AWA, but I mean... What do you do with him? Do you have him wrestle and team with Iron Sheik, or do you have him displace Blassie as Sheik's manager? Yeah, I mean, it was just interesting to imagine what it, what could have happened. Uh, you know, just another uh, major major managing name in the mix. Anyway, I mean, I I went with Paul Ellering once again. You know, I, I thought just way too much TV time. But uh, manager of the year, best manager, we've got some good stuff going on in 1984. Max, who did you go with? I went with Jim Cornette because, uh, you know, he went in there and set Mid-South on fire. And, you know, they had the big feud with, uh, with Watts and JYD leading to the Superdome had two really separate feuds with the Rock and Roll Express, with the Fantastics in the middle, you know, managed Hercules Hernandez for a little while. You know, he really, like, got the opportunity to run with it and, you know, took that opportunity and sprinted off in the distance. I like Jimmy Hart a lot. You know, thought he was good as always. You know, Bobby Heenan, you know, AWA or WWF was good, but I, I picked Jim Cornette as number one. Hey, I need to throw in real quick this. There are two different criteria for this. I forgot to mention this. There's the Wrestling Observer Newsletter who went with Jim Cornette. You're just kind of going with the guy who gets the most heat and does the best interviews. And then you have Pro Wrestling Illustrated who went with Paul Ellering. Like, okay, in a kayfabe perspective, who accomplished the most as a pro yeah. wrestling manager? So, I mean, Steve, who did you have? You know, mainly because of, of our show and the, the fact that you and I have gone back and listened to so much of it, uh, Luel Bano. 
I mean, I, I'm just I'm just amazed, and that, and when I hear Luke Kippelman laughing when we play the clips, I mean, his 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 interviews are extraordinarily good, and uh, you know, the whole thing with uh, Cindy Lauper and the Piper, and it's almost like they almost did a Piper against Albano feud at the end of the year, which they couldn't have done for the wrestling, but you know, just the personality was just unbelievable, and the interviews, uh, I, I definitely think Albano Albano's final year is a is a heel manager was a very strong year i agree i mean there were there were no shortage of candidates uh for me going with you know what the observer would do like just the best guy i would think any other year jimmy hart would have would have gotten my vote i mean i would get up at 605 a.m on Saturday morning, you know, I'm 19 years old. I'm not doing this for anything if I'm not really, really entertained. And Jimmy Hart was just fantastic. And you know, as soon as he left, like that Georgia promotion was unwatchable and no more getting up early for me. Like I said, any other year, Hart would have won it. But Jim Cornette gets it for me. I mean, his, his 1984 work was his best work ever. And I know some of you might be like, wait a minute, I, I've seen 1988 Jim Cornette. I've seen Smoky Mountain Jim Cornette. No, 1984 was Jim Cornette at his best. He Not only was he funny, but he was like very, he was an evil little guy. He was despicable. And, you know, and like Steve said, you know, you're, he's... You know, feud, or excuse me, Max said he was feuding with the Rock and Roll Express twice. He had the big run against Bill Watts, against JYD, and that's why also I'm picking Jim Cornette for PWI, Wrestling Manager of the Year. In 1984, I mean, no manager came along and, and took a heel to the top of a promotion. Um, you know, Bobby Heenan kind of, again, by PWI standards, by push standards, you know, he was in charge of Nick Bockwinkle. Well, Bockwinkle finally lost the AWA title for good, so we thought. And then he went to the WWF and started over. So using PWI standards, Heenan didn't have a great year. As a matter of fact, you know, it was kind of a rough year. My number two was Gary Hart because I love what he did in World Class with Chris Adams. And I thought that was a great storyline that he was bringing Chris Adams to the level of a world's heavyweight champion. And we all know how that crashed and burned. But anyway. Biggest shock of the year. Max, who do you have? I went with David Von Erich dying because, you know, now, you know, we're conditioned to uh, a wrestler dying and, and, you know, being maybe a little surprised by it, but not really shocked, unfortunately. And in 1984, you know, up to that point, you know, once in a while, you know, you'd hear of a wrestler dying in a car accident, you know, Moondog Maine, um, the accident that happened with the guys, Sam Bass and the guys down in Tennessee, but the idea that, you know, David Von Erich, who was, what, 23, 24, just suddenly dying out of nowhere, you know, not like, you know, he had had like some terrible accident or long-term illness. It just came out of nowhere. And, you know, it, it just didn't seem possible. So I, I would go with that as the most shocking situation. It really was a shock. I mean, I one of my friends told me that, you know, hey, I read in USA Today that David Von Erich died. And I'm like, what? So now it's like officially kind of a rumor. And then you turn on TV and they confirm it. He's dead. So at least I was kind of ready. It didn't come out of nowhere for me. But, I mean, it was still absolutely shocking. Steve, what did you have? I went with uh, Vince's uh, purchasing of uh, GCW and also the Black Saturday. I mean, uh, 
it just, uh, you know, if you, if you would ask any of us wrestling fans, you know, back in 83 or before, or like, uh, could this even have been imaginable? Nobody would have fathomed it. But, you know, as we know now, all the behind-the-scenes stuff that happened, uh, the Jim Barnett being disillusioned and leaving Ole and uh, the Bar- Briscoes, you know, getting tired of losing money and they he, they reach out to Vince. I mean, it all makes sense now, but at the time, it was just like, it's so shocking. And uh, that was my shock of the year. That was my runner up. I mean, when you think about it, there are only two really big ones, right? Um, and they're, they were very different. You know, David Von Erich was kind of this real life thing that happened this person who was married died and you know he was so young and you, you you just couldn't believe it and you got michael hayes on tv you know saying that david was a warrior and you know they've had wars together but the, you know, michael hayes respected david von eric you know the whole thing was just you know you're taking it back and then the other one where you know i'm speeding home trying to get home for 605 so i don't miss a minute of georgia championship wrestling running in the door turn on the tv this was back when tvs took a couple of minutes to warm up (laughs) and finally like right at 605 like you know it comes on the music is on georgia championship wrestling freddie miller comes on well that's not that big a surprise and then he introduces vince mcmahon and i was just like what what am i seeing here (laughs) Yep. And they start airing WWF matches. And I'm just, you know, I'm trying to figure this all out. And I just remember like a half an hour into it thinking this isn't like, you know, a, a special thing. This is now a WWF show. And God damn it, there's plenty of WWF wrestling on. Why do I have to have another two hours? And it's all stuff I've already seen before. They were running uh, rerun matches on Black Saturday. So, I mean, we had a show that was specifically called Black Saturday Was Worth It because we finally got Ole out of the picture, Vince out of the picture, and JCP on. But, you know... Uh, July 14th, 1984, I mean, I was as taken aback as a person could be. No internet back then either, so all you knew is that Georgia was gone and the WWF was on, but you didn't know why, and you didn't have an easy way to find out why. I had no way to find out. As a matter of fact, you know, months later, I read in one of the Lubet magazines, like, you know, a synopsis of what happened that, you know, Vince took control of the company and then only a couple of months later started a new company and that's what was going on. But, you know, again, walking in that door and, and seeing Vince McMahon strut out onto the TBS set, it, it was something, believe me. All right, uh... Best heel slash most hated. The Observer gave it to Roddy Piper, as did Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Max, who are your best heels of 1984, using both those criteria? It's, it's hard to argue with Piper in, in either case. Um, you know, he really, really grabbed onto that role and, and was fantastic uh, with it. Um, you know, the only other contender I really had, contenders really, Mr. Wrestling 2 doing his angry bitter old man heel act in mid south <laughs> was was tremendous and it's too bad that wrestling changed so much because you know if he had not gone to the WWF and the territory stayed strong he could have taken that act you know out of uh mid south and you know into Georgia for a while it lasted you know in the back half of the year maybe take it to Tennessee Alabama Florida Jimmy Garvin and Precious were also you know a great heel unit to go up against you know Sunshine and and 
Chris Adams, but overall Piper was the top guy. I can see that. All right, Steve, who do you have? Uh, I, I would definitely say Piper was you know, the number one, and uh, my number two would probably be Iron Sheik just because of the feud with Slaughter. I can see that. Iron Sheik was definitely a very hated person out this way, believe me. For Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I mean, what can I say? It's, it's Roddy Piper all the way. He is the king of heels in pro wrestling in 1984. I don't, I don't even know who comes in second place. I mean, Piper was just dominant. As far as my Observer Award, we're talking about the guy who was the best heel as Max stated, pro, uh, Mr. Wrestling 2 gets my number two vote. I mean, he, you know, he, I remember first seeing the tapes in 1987, and I knew what was going to happen next. I had read about what happened three years earlier in Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and I still wanted to jump through the TV screen and punch Mr. Wrestling 2 <laughs> because he was being such an ass to, to Magnum TA. And we'll talk more about that as, as this goes on. Um, but my the the best heel in my opinion, the most despicable person ever in wrestling. If I had to give an all time award, like okay, pick a year, match them up against all the other years. Who is the most despicable person in wrestling? It's Jim Cornette. Good pick. I cannot recommend the episodes of Bid South Wrestling, which are available on Peacock. Enough with Jim Cornette. I mean, he you know. Bill Watts just, you know, comes out one day and just goes off on Jim Cornette. And you could tell Watts was mad as hell. You just, you know, Watts is like, you want to take his face and slap him, you know. And I'm sure everyone on TV was, you know, go watching on TV was like, go do this, Bill Watts. Because Cornette was such a jerk. He was a different Jim Cornette than the one you saw on WTBS. The guy on WTBS, there you can't tell me that everyone wasn't laughing at Jim Cornette at some point because he was so funny. Not in Mid-South. I mean, he was funny, but in a way that, like, was almost disturbing. Like, Boyd Pierce would come to the ring, and Jim Cornette would say something nasty to Boyd Pierce, and you'd be like, oh, my God, he said that to Boyd Pierce. How could he? So Jim Cornette, for me, for both both awards. Was uh, Bill Dundee the booker then in, in Mid-South? No, he, he was... Uh... So Bill Dundee, you know, they had the whole deal. I think that's been talked about a lot with the trade where yeah. uh, Jarrett sent some guys to Watts and Watts sent some guys to Jarrett. And so Dundee had lost the loser leaves town match to Lawler, but then went to book the Chattanooga thing that Jarrett Noli had, which ended up crashing and burning. So he couldn't, I think they somehow worked out a way for him to go back to Memphis for a little bit, but they didn't want to keep him around. So he went to Mid-South and he, Watts, used him only as the booker. He wouldn't let him wrestle really at all much okay. in that first year. And so he was the guy that was really putting together, you know, that whole, you know, sort of heavy angle, fast paced wrestlers, action oriented uh, setup that we saw that everybody from who's seen it just loves. Yeah. He, he deserves some of the credit for that for sure. Is uh, like you, like you guys just said, it's very memorable and, uh, and definitely uh, one of the things that made Cornette's career a hall of fame career. Yeah, I mean, this was the launching pad for Jim Cornette. He was fine in Memphis as the number two guy behind Jimmy Hart, but that's all he was, and he comes to Mid-South, and he basically takes the thing over. I mean, live and learn. I thought the only time Bill Dundee was the booker in Mid-South was 1985, and Bill Watts was, you know, I mean, Dundee was on TV a lot in one of his shoot interviews. Bill Watts was talking about that, that like, yeah, you know, Bill Dundee booked himself like he was Andre the Giant, (laughs) and instead... He 
you know, in 84, he does a smart thing. It's like, okay, Booker, you're not on TV. You're just the Booker. And I did not know that, Max. Thank you. Oh, no problem. Best babyface slash most popular. The Observer has Hulk Hogan. Pro Wrestling Illustrated has Kerry Von Erich as the most popular wrestler in the land. Max, using both criterion, who do you have? I went with Hulk Hogan in both instances because, you know, we, we, the question always comes up, well, if Hulk Hogan wasn't available, you know, who, who could Vince have used instead? And really the answer is there isn't anybody that he could have used that would have fit that spot like a glove the way that Hogan did. And, you know, Kerry was obviously hugely popular and he's my, my runner up and Lawler, my second runner up, but Hogan, you know, he just set the crowds on fire wherever he went. And you know, even people that went to these shows, I saw people, you know, go to shows with anti Hulk Hogan signs and determined to boo him and they would get caught up in it and cheer for him anyway. He just <laughs> had a way of pulling everybody into it. All right, Steve, who did you have? Uh, for Observer and Pro Wrestling Illustrated, best babyface slash most popular. So I agree with Max that uh, Hogan was the number one babyface for sure. Uh, you know, especially as the year came to a close, he was feuding with Piper. And, uh, you know, we were kind of like getting getting closer to what WrestleMania would be. And I would say that as the year kind of came to a close, Slaughter's popularity had dropped off a bit as he was getting ready to leave the Federation. So... I would give Hogan number one for sure and slaughter my number two vote. That makes sense. For me, uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and Wrestling Observer Newsletter, the best babyface and most popular wrestler in the universe was Hulk Hogan. No one else was even close. I remember getting the year-end awards issue from Pro Wrestling Illustrated and seeing that Kerry was was most popular, and I didn't know that the voting was worked. Okay, I, I didn't. And I was just like, okay, wow, this makes no sense. And I figured, well, okay, think about who's voting here. You're having people vote from, you know, who are are more hardcore, dedicated wrestling fans and that follow all the promotions. So maybe that's the explanation. But of course, it wasn't. I should have been able to figure out that, you know, the I knew the magazines and the WWF were at war. And this was a political thing because, you know, no one could tell you that there was a more popular wrestler than Hulk Hogan in 1984. I'm sorry. Kerry deserves an honorable mention, but in reality, it's not even close. Most obnoxious. Max, who did... Now, this is a an Observer Award only, obviously. Max, who did you have? Uh, I went with Vince McMahon. You know, not so much because of the expansion, although I think that fuel, fueled a lot of the hate towards him, but... You know, that was the year that he seemed to graduate from being a fairly conventional announcer to being this over-the-top, you know, carnival carnival barker type that, um, you know, he'd actually get worse uh, as the years went on. But this is when he really kind of got just very bombastic and, and intrusive. Yeah, I went also with Dusty Rhodes for pushing himself too hard. You know, he had to beat Flair in a non-title match when they had that Orange Bowl card in Florida. You know, gave himself... Uh, yes. And Manny Fernandez, the tag belts as soon as he got to Mid-Atlantic uh, and just generally was was too all over the place. And then finally, you know, Ole Anderson for, um, you know, trying to basically be a low rent Bill Watts in, in Georgia. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. All right, Steve, who did you have? 
Well, for, for those uh, for those people listening to John, uh, I, I heard John McAdam on another podcast recently where he had to actually listen to some Monday Night Raw shows on this other program he was on. And it was Vince McMahon, in my opinion, at, at the very peak of his obnoxiousness, where and I, I'm not even going to try to imitate him, but his voice was so kind of like high and low and garbled and he's talking about Shawn Michaels like uh, you, know, you know it's just it's just unbelievable but I felt so bad for John that he had to endure that reliving that moment in time of 1994 or 1995 wrestling it was so bad but I think Vince in, in this period wasn't completely gone quite yet but I, I do see uh, Max's point that he was a little over the top uh, my most obnoxious would probably be uh, Angelo Mosca, just for those Toronto taping shows where he was with Jack Reynolds, and he was just so, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe Vince told him like to act childlike because like every show was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> he was acting like a, a child there, you know, the, watching these matches, and uh, and also a runner-up would be Jack Reynolds because he was terrible on the WWF and then later terrible on Pro Wrestling USA. He was just. You know, so uh, he was like a funeral home director, it seemed like. I mean, I remember watching Pro Wrestling USA for the first time, and then maybe a week or two later, I see Jack Reynolds is now with the WWF, <laughs> and I just started cracking up. I, you know, didn't take, uh, didn't need to take calculus to figure out what happened there. Uh, most obnoxious for Vince McMahon, I think, Max, I actually think the year that he crossed that line from, you know, okay, he's the announcer to, oh my God, this guy is over over the top. It was, I, Steve and I did a show on it. It was the May 11th, 1985 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. I remember watching it and, you know, I had known Vince McMahon for, uh, as a television personality for nine years and, you know, watching it and being like, what is going on with Vince? He's talking with this voice like he's got his testicles stuck out of the and, you know, but like I said, that was, 85 was the year he ter- crossed the line for me. That's a good point. He was always super, super obnoxious on those Saturday Night Main Events shows. Oh, he cranked it up on Saturday Night's Main Event and WrestleMania too. But anyway, the the distant runner-up is Ole Anderson, who I you know now understand. I mean, at the time, I knew Ole was more than just a wrestler in 1984. I mean, he just had too big a role on TV, and I, I knew he was something more than just that. Little did I know that, yeah, he's the promoter. Uh, he's my distant number two. My number one is Gene Okerlund. <laughs> and I've grown... To not dislike Gene Okerlund, but like I remember watching him in early '84, and we talked about this, you know, during the National Expansion episodes. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. This guy just, you know, doing this screaming carnival barker. Come on down, Boston Garden, Causeway Street. Good tickets still available. Like. <laughs> I'm like, what am I listening to? Max, is it me? I haven't seen a lot of Okerlund in the AWA, but like, did he really crank it up in the WWF or, you know? I think he did. I think everybody cranked it up when they went to the WWF. That said, you know, he was still recognizably mean gene from, from the AWA. And so, you know, having seen him for years before he ever went there, you know, the, the, it was just, you know, easy to accept. I I have him in a different negative category here, but not, uh, not in this one. Okay. Uh, but, but he, yeah, I could definitely see that, you know, he was 
amping things up. And if you'd never seen him before or had seen him very little, and then suddenly you're getting him turned up to 11, uh, I can see why that would be pretty off-putting. Yeah, it, I mean, like I said, it was you know I was used to one thing, and then one day I'm getting something completely different, and that's not the only thing that would change dramatically in the WWF in 1984. Most unimproved, of course, this is an observer-only award. Basically, who has taken the biggest step back uh, between January 1st, 84, and December 31st, 1984? The observer gave it to Jimmy Snuka. Max, who did you take? Well, I'll admit that he was already sliding, and uh, it's really a case of him sliding even further as opposed to, you know, just going off a cliff. But, you know, Junkyard Dog, you know, he was still, he was a shadow of himself from 80 80 to 82 by the beginning of 84. But once he moved to the WWF and he didn't have Watts on him to work hard, you know, he pretty much went down the drain in the ring. Good point. And his interviews in the WWF, he used to do kick-ass interviews in Mid-South, and now he's mm-hmm. just doing the, the barking like a dog thing. I was I remember being really disappointed that, you know, hey, I'm getting this junkyard dog instead of the Georgia Mid-South junkyard dog. So that's a good pick. How about you, Steve? You know, I, I guess I would probably go with Jimmy Snuka, probably half of it in a kayfabe way. You know, you know, and we, we saw in 83, he couldn't beat Morocco in the big feud of matches that they had. Now he has a big feud with Piper and he loses that feud as well. So, you know, if you're looking at, you know, wrestling from a kayfabe perspective, he's losing a lot of matches and uh, he's falling off the precipice as far as being like an unbeatable superstar. You know, you made a good point. I mean, yeah, he took care of Ray Stevens and he took care of Lou Albano, but, you know, Ray was kind of an old man by then. Uh, He couldn't get it done against Morocco. Before that, he couldn't get it done against Backlund. And now Roddy Piper just went out and humiliated the guy on TV. And and Snooker was never able to get his revenge. And he did a stretcher job for Piper in Madison Square Garden. And some of of this makes me wonder if it was done on purpose, Steve. It's like, let's take a, a lot of air out of Jimmy Snooker's tires. No, I, I think you're right on that. I, I think that the behind-the-scenes uh, feelings that the office probably had toward him uh, after the Nancy Argentina thing, I, I'm sure that they uh, went from thinking of him as, you know, this uh, he's the golden calf to thinking of him as uh, a burden. So it's, it's unfortunate. It is, and I bet part of it, too, was they, they wanted – the people who, you know, in 1983, Jimmy Snook is my favorite wrestler. They wanted to get them on the Hogan train. Right. I mean, that's just the mm-hmm. way it goes in wrestling. Mine, I'm not going to argue with Snooka. I considered Backlund, but I also think both of them took their biggest steps back in 1983, believe it or not. Uh, Backlund got strong consideration for me. Uh, Tony Atlas, for whatever reason, coming into 1984, I saw him as a potential WWF NWA champion by the end of 84. I just didn't see that. I mean, he was back in the AWA doing not much and He seemed to have lost his way, but ultimately, and we've talked about this gentleman before, the guy who took the biggest step back for me was Tommy Rich. I mean, I was used to him being a legit contender uh, against Harley Race and Ric Flair to win the NWA championship. You know, he was the uh, national heavyweight champion, always a top guy in Georgia, and now he's stuck in a tag team in Memphis. I love Memphis, but in 1984, it was a mid-major, 
and he's in the tag team. And, you know, uh, a clear step behind Jerry Lawler in the pecking order. So, you know, in, in both a kayfabe and real sense, uh, I mean, he took a big step. You know, like we talked about, you know, he his weight got out of control. The, the hair looked ridiculous. Like, not looking back 40 years ago, in 1984, I'm looking mm-hmm. at him in a magazine saying, what's with that hair? This wasn't a... Uh a category in the Observer yearbook, but if there was an, a category for worst match, uh, as far as like a worst concept for a match, it might have been Tony Atlas and Jim Brunzel in a handicap match against Bruiser Brody. I mean, there's, there's nothing good could yeah. come out of a match like that. I mean, yeah, I mean, that is, that's just poor booking because uh, what if the baby faces win? So what, it was two against one. Right. I don't know why they did that. They did that in St. Louis. They had uh, Fritz Von Erich and David Von Erich in a handicap match teamed against Harley Race. But guess what? Fritz grabbed a chair as soon as the match started, and it was David against Race, and David won uh, on his own against the NWA champion. You know, wow, he can beat Harley Race on his own, and it's still stupid. So anyway... <laughs> Uh, most washed up wrestler, a, a little bit different than most unimproved. Just like you washed up, you look at this guy and you're like, why is he on TV? You know, he peaked five years ago. Max, who do you have? Well, I, I went with Bob Backlund because he went from being a, you know, even if people were kind of tired of him and he was sliding, he was still a money-making WWF champion right to the end in December of 90, of 83. I mean, and in 1984, he was just completely irrelevant. And, uh, you know, WWF got rid of him. And if not for Pro Wrestling USA, thinking that Backlund could still draw for them in New York, you know, what major promotion was really going to hitch their wagon to him? As uh, runners-up had Tommy Rich, basically the same reasons that, that you mentioned. And then uh, Ernie Ladd, just because... You know, he did runs that year in Georgia, uh, in Mid-Atlantic, in uh, Mid-South, and very clearly he could still talk, but his knees were shot. He could barely move. He'd put on weight. He'd shaved the beard and mustache, which actually made him look older. It did. It just didn't work anymore. Yeah, they they made him uh, North American champion in Mid South, and clearly that was a an early retirement gift. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, Lad looked completely washed up. Uh, Steve, who do you have? You know, I'm not going to uh, trash poor Jay Strongbow anymore. I, I guess I'll go with what Max <laughs> said with about Backlund. You know, Backlund would look so pitiful, especially there was a MSG match where it was still considered one of the main event matches. It was him against Valentine. It was either February or March of uh, 84. And when they wrestled They had in matches that- in March and April. Okay. And when they had that match, for whatever reason, Backlund would not do any spots in that match. I mean, they didn't have any movement in that match as far as, hey, I'll throw you into the ropes, I'll throw you into the buckles. It was just like, you know, holds and this and that. And the fans were just like crapping all over it. They just hated it. And uh, and I thought this was funny just to tell you guys, uh, in the same category, most washed up in the Observer uh, about the ninth or tenth runner-up was Jake Roberts, who in, in, about, oh, in wow. about another year or two would would really be revitalized and be one of the you know top heel performers in wrestling when he feuded with Steamboat. So um, it's funny how uh, you know some of these guys at least turn it around. 
It, that's really weird. I mean, there must have been one voter who just did not like what World Class was doing with Jake Roberts. I mean, that makes no sense. They, and, and in fairness, World Class did not use him correctly at all, but still. Yeah, he, yeah, Jake, uh, Jake definitely had a lot more to offer in the mid-'80s and, of course, the later-'80s, too. Yeah, I mean, that mm-hmm. that's just a crazy vote. Anyway, most washed-up wrestler, uh, I mean, Backlund and Snuka were on my list. Uh, Tommy Rich gets consideration, but, I mean, we're talking about, look, you turn on your TV and you're like, what is this washed-up old man doing getting a big push on national cable? Of course, we're talking about Thunderbolt Patterson. (laughs) I think the last time I had even seen his name in a magazine was 1981 when he was working from Outlaw promotion in Georgia and I remember you know it was the the Ring magazine and I'm thinking wow Thunderbolt Patterson I thought he retired in like 1978 so aside from that little run Patterson has been basically out of wrestling for six years and now he's getting a big push in Georgia and he looked so old and so washed up and I remember Jimmy Hart coming out and confronting Thunderbolt Patterson and Ole Anderson, and Jimmy Hart says, this is 1984, baby, not 1954. (laughs) And I was dying laughing because these Ole and Thunderbolt looked like they should have been hanging out in a malt shop in the background on Happy Days (laughs) as two extras. And it was just awful, and like I said... I mean, it, it. Thunderbolt Patterson. He was, you know, it, I, I sometimes I pick on Ole Anderson on this show a little bit too much, but Ole was the booker, and he thought pushing Thunderbolt Patterson in 1984 was a good idea. So maybe he shouldn't have been the booker. Then again, he brought him back in 1990. So what do I know? But anyway, worst gimmick. This award had not even been created yet, but that's why we're looking back retroactively and making selections. Max, who had the worst gimmick in 1984? I think I already know your answer. Let's see if I, if you get it right. I was going to go with Buck Zumoff. Oh, no, I got it wrong. I thought for sure it would be Missing Link, but go ahead. You know, it was a bad, it was a terrible gimmick, but I was, I don't know, somehow when I was making this list, it didn't come to mind. I probably should put him at number one, but I just thought that you know, Buck, even before we knew about how horrible he was uh, as a person, that you know, his look and the jumpsuit, the mustache—I mean, everything about him—just looked uncool at a time when you know, say, Mid South had the Rock and Roll Express, who you know really were cool. And then again, probably should have mentioned uh, Link, but others that were up there—you uh, know, Kevin Sullivan for his devil occult gimmick—you know, putting it into overdrive when it was time to slow down, and you know, just as a, a Honorable mention to one that you'd mentioned before, you know, the New York Assassins, you know, Oli uh, <laughs> came up with this gimmick for them trying to take shots at the WWF. But, you know, really, he only made himself and his own promotion look bad. Very good points on all of these. Uh, Steve, who did you have for worst gimmick? You know, maybe maybe I shouldn't mention him just because I know in uh, in the Minnesota area, he did become a, a popular cult hero. Uh, and Max can uh, tell us more about that. But Baron Von Raschke, I mean, he just uh, 
you know, you know, he was a great heel back in the day. He really was back in the late late sixties, throughout the seventies. Uh, traveled every territory. He was a major major star. But here at the end, uh, he gets his babyface run. Probably not that different than George Steele's babyface run. We see another year or two. But, um, you know, just the whole thing, you know, being a former Nazi, becoming a fan favorite seems a little, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I can wrap my head around that. But Yeah, no, it, it, it's an acquired taste. I think, you know, if Baron had come here for the first time, like in 1983, that people would have thought, who is this old guy who wasn't even that old, but he just looked like he was born 60. Right. Uh, and then it was strictly a case of, you know, he'd been around forever. He was the wacky character, you know, with crusher and mad dog that everybody liked to imitate uh i think you know if you put a gun to their head i think you know awa fans back then would have admitted that he was pretty terrible in the ring and um you know the gimmick was was preposterous in a babyface setting yeah but i guess yeah it, it's like you're you're pretty much telling fans that it's fake at that point because how could this guy be a babyface right Change his ways. <laughs> Found a new leaf. All right, all right. All right. Worst gimmick for me, um, Kevin Sullivan definitely got to mention. One of the first things I learned when I started getting a little bit smart to the business in 1987 was, you know, if you put a gimmick out there and it doesn't work, there are two things you can do. You can pull the plug on it or you can push it even harder. And believe it or not, B is the usual answer because if a promoter believes in something, he's not just going to give up on it. He's going to push it harder. Uh, Honky Tonk Man being a great example. Triple H being a great example. Like, look, you know, if I believe in this, we're going to we're going to push it. We're going to get it over. We're going to die trying. And when Kevin Sullivan really put his foot on the gas, he was the booker and he was going to push Kevin Sullivan and you know the whole crazy it wasn't just kevin sullivan anymore it was uh nancy sullivan mark lewin and whoever else was in that crazy gang of theirs um mm-hmm. so anyway you know i mean either you were injured or you weren't and i wasn't missing link got a honorable mention for me another honorable mention and this guy could have been the winner master g in mid-south <laughs> wrestling george wells yeah that was uh i don't know what they were thinking with that one I know what they were thinking. We need a black guy to 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 come in and replace Junkyard Dog. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I, for some reason, you know, some of these different awards cross over because I yeah. uh, have him completely not in this category, but then he's in another category that's that's coming up because you're right. There, there definitely is some crossover on some of them, and and yeah, him. I mean, when he debuted on Mid-South Wrestling, I was 19 years old. I could have told Bill Watts, Bill, this is not going to work. You should stop investing TV time on this immediately and stop having guys do jobs for Master G. Like Ted DiBiase had to do a job to help get this guy over, and he was not getting over. So he's one of mine. Uh, George Wells, who, you know, gets on TV. I I turned down $5,000 from Madison Square Garden to be (laughs) here tonight, and it's like, you know, the dumbest mark in the world knows that's not true. Uh, but <laughs> mm-hmm. ultimately, the winner, and his name comes up again for a, a negative award, was George's own Mr. R. I don't think Ole Anderson understood how the booking of the masked baby face coming in and getting revenge worked. It started with Dusty Rhodes losing a loser leave town match to Kevin Sullivan 
in a match where he was egregiously cheated. Jake Roberts came to the ringside, dressed as Santa Claus, and, and sprayed an atomizer in his mouth or something like that through the cage, and Dusty had to leave, and it was it really wasn't fair. So here comes uh, the Midnight Rider. And the uh, actually, yeah, then as the year went on, Junkyard Dog gets screwed by Ted DiBiase, gets knocked out by a foreign object, has to leave town. It's not fair. So he comes back under a mask as Stagger Lee. World Class did this. Uh, Chris Adams surprised Jimmy Garvin by showing up one day as the Avenger. I'm probably, oh, Charlie Brown from out of town. Same thing, <laughs> oh, yeah. Jimmy Valiant with the half mask uh, because he got screwed against Kabuki. Now, here we are a year later. Every promotion has already done this, so Ole finally gets in on the act, except Tommy Rich didn't even really get screwed, or if he did, they didn't show it on TV. They didn't make enough of an issue as, hey, this is an egregious miscarriage of justice. He just comes back under the mask, and it's terrible. I mean, Tommy Rich was so washed by mid-1984, and it was a waste of Ted DiBiase. So there's my worst gimmick. Good call. Yes. That's a deep cut, John. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Max Levy. Thank you, Steve Generelli, for all, you guys are doing a great job so far. This really is my favorite podcast of the year, the year-end awards from 30 years ago, 40 years ago, excuse me. Not sure if there's interest in us doing 1994 or 1974. If there is, let us know on the Facebook group. But other than that, I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does uh, producing this podcast and I want to thank everyone for listening sincerely thank you very much and I hope next week you will enjoy uh, part two of the 1984 year end awards and with that this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network this concludes our podcast day